the answer to a trivia question. He and a couple of others who have both performed for the A's and the Giants. He was with Oakland in 86 and 39 games. And this year up and down between here and Phoenix. And Roger Craig really loves his bat. Hurt his shoulder a couple of years ago. Snapped his collarbone in two in winter ball. So throwing has been a problem, but they think he may be starting giant catcher in 1990. There's a high drive to deep left field. Tony Phillips goes all the way back, and that one is gone. And if you have stayed with us, you have just watched a little bit of World Series history. Seven home runs in a game. First World Series at bat for Bill Bates. A three-run homer, regardless of the score. So hi, welcome to Eyes Wide Open podcast for commercial real estate. I'm Ann Hambly, your host, and I uh, am taking and throwing a curveball at you all today. Usually we talk about different things in commercial real estate. We've um, certainly been talking a lot about the market and the changes and are we in a recession? Are we not? And, you know, that's all really stressful stuff, but it's stuff that we deal with every day. Today, the curveball is I am, I'm having uh, this podcast with my my dear brother, uh, my brother, Bill Babe. Um, the, the benefit, the thing I want him to really talk about is this guy hit a home run in the World Series, which you probably just saw the intro for. And we're going to we're going to have today's podcast all about baseball. And there's nobody better to talk about baseball than my brother, Bill. So, Bill. It, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. This is such a funny format for us, but I I, I love you. I'm happy to have you. Um, tell everybody about your background in a nutshell. Well, first of all, Ann, thank you for having me on your podcast. And I love you too, sis. And I love your great puns that you use, throwing a curveball that was outstanding. Very well done. Um, as you know, we grew up in California. And to give your listeners a brief, brief background uh, as far as how did I get in baseball and all that other good stuff, um, you might want to say that, that baseball kind of was in my blood, uh, as you know, all along. And, um, you know, our dad obviously loved baseball and instilled that on us at an early age. Uh, for me, I felt that um, there was a love for it that was instilled in me already. So it was easy for me to... Uh, pursue it. And um, so I went up, uh, grew up in Southern California, you know, playing Little League, just like everybody else. And, um, you know, started realizing that, hey, I can play this game. And so that even gave me more incentive. And I kept going on, I ended up going to uh, Pepperdine University, where I signed my first professional contract out of Pepperdine. Uh, once out of Pepperdine, I joined the Oakland A's and broke into the big leagues in 1986. Uh, played with people like Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Dave Kingman, uh, some really good people. Um, I eventually went to the Cubs for a couple of years, played with Mark Grace, a few of the others. And for you Cub fans out there, I know you'll appreciate that. And then went on to play with the San Francisco Giants, um, played in the 1989 World Series, the famous Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, and after that series, you know, my life kind of changed and took a different direction. I went on to play in Japan for two years. Um, and then after that, decided that I wanted to help people and 
uh, decided to, to shift gears and change careers and uh, got on the Tucson Fire Department. I rose to captain very quickly within five years and uh, spent 26 years serving the community here in Tucson. And then before I retired, I uh, decided I still wanted to do things and help people. So I became a Medicare broker and that's what I currently do today. And I want to express my jealousy in the fact that you're my younger brother and you retired before me, but I got a long ways to go. So I'm, <laughs> let's, we skimmed through that earthquake. Let's I boy, I was so remember it, obviously being one on the other side, worried about you, but man, mm -hmm. I bet that was a, uh, that was a uh, speak to that for a minute. I can't imagine yeah. what that was like. Well, growing up in California, obviously we were, we were no strangers to earthquakes, but um you know, playing in a World Series, there's a there's obviously a level of excitement that you've never experienced mm -hmm. before. And I remember walking out onto the field. It was right before game three was getting ready to start. And I'm standing there just on top of the dugout. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm passing out and going to hit the ground. And, you know, internally, I'm thinking, OK, I'm overly excited and, and I'm, you know, just going to pass mm -hmm. out. And then I started hearing people screaming earthquake earthquake and then I started dawning on me what had happened and then I saw the center field fence start to open up and I saw the police start driving out onto the field uh people were pouring onto the field you know family members and stuff people screaming um and then you know dawned on me you know that we just had a massive massive earthquake and I really didn't know the extent of it until um later on I remember when we were trying to leave the ballpark and you know I live 30 minutes away but it took me like four hours to get home but mm. I remember looking out beyond the parking lot and it looked like a war zone you know there was uh, fires everywhere buildings collapsed people screaming I mean it was so surreal and and uh, yet it was reality and um, and then I remember talking to some of my teammates and you know we had emergency lighting inside the clubhouse and there's a long concrete runway that you come from the clubhouse up to the dugout. And so the emergency lighting's all through there. Well, the guys that were still inside the clubhouse told me that when the earthquake hit, uh, the lights did not come on and it was pitch black inside and all they could mm. hear was the concrete cracking around them. Mm. And they mm. thought that that was the end of their life, you know? And wow. so, you know, people, when we were leaving that day, um, we literally had to use lighters and whatever we could find to find our clothes, grab it. And a lot of people left just in their uniform. And I was one of those people that left in my uniform. And then it was just a matter of, you know, where do we go from here? You know, I remember going back to my hotel and there was nothing, nothing on in the hotel. So I remember I went inside the hotel and it's before um, I could get a hold of anybody. And, you know, I was obviously my first wife and, uh, I didn't have a cell phone and, you know, we had the regular phones inside the hotel, but there was no way to get a hold of her. And then, um, so I remember getting into the hotel and I had just had my first child and, you know, so, so, so it was kind of an area where everybody was at odds, you know, how many people have died, you know, is, is he alive? What's going on? Yeah. And I remember turning the TV on full blast and all the lights on so that when I went to sleep that night, once the, that got restored, I would know. And sure enough, about five in the morning, all of a sudden, boom, blasted everywhere. And then I realized that, you know, we had all the electricity back, but where do we go from here? You know, so that wow. was 
You know, it's amazing. We, um, I've, I've never heard that specific insight, you know, from you. That's, that is amazing. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, let's, let's now fast forward a couple days. So it was the same, same series, right. Where you hit the home run. So now the, now you got, you couldn't go back to, um, Candlestick Park in San Francisco. So then you had to go, didn't you go to Jack Murphy stadium, as I recall it, or talk, talk about what happened then and how you got to that, uh, to the home run. So, so basically it was a waiting game now and, um, nobody knew what was going to happen. There was no decision made yet, whether we would continue the world series, obviously with all the tragedies, the collapse of the bridge, Mm. you know, the world series was kind of irrelevant, you know, it was kind of, you know, Mm. we've got a bigger problem here and that's when humanity takes over. And, you know, I was one of those people. I volunteered to help and went around on buses, you know, helping people, families mm-hmm. that things were destroyed. Um, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember um, asking if I could go home, you know, to check on my family. And the answer was an absolute no, because we we didn't know what mm-hmm. was going to happen. Not only that, I think the airports were closed down. And uh and I think, you know, later on it was decided. And of course, the structural engineers had to check out Candlestick Park because there was a lot of damage. There was yeah. people in the upper um, in the upper deck, you know, near an escalator where the escalator completely separated from the upper deck. And some of them were sitting there and the concrete opened up right below their <gasps> feet. Oh, my God. So and there was also during that earthquake, there was a, a worker that was up on one of the light poles working strapped in. And he got he got flown around like a rag doll, and I guess he defecated mm. himself and everything else, and was so scared he came down, and never came back, you know. Oh. So, uh, but during the next days, the decisions were made by the powers to be that it was finally decided that it was going to be more helpful uh, to play because you know it's just like any tragedy in American history. Whenever we have one the thing that that propels us beyond it is when we continue on with what our normalcy that we have, one of those being a World Series. Now, the value of the World Series had dropped, but but it's what everybody wanted to see. So yeah. so they finally made that decision, and 10 days later, we started. And that was in San Diego, I think, right? No, no, that was in San Francisco. Oh, no. We played in Candlestick, yep. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. And then, so now, okay. So let's, let's, let's take a, a ride and go. I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you, Yeah. but um, talk to the listeners because you're one of the very few people. We're the only person I know I can ask this question. What, how did it feel to be at bat in the world series? Number one. And then how did it feel to hit the home run in the world series? I mean, I, I can't, I, I will never comprehend. I'm sure what you felt during those times. It's one of those moments, Anne, that that um, you you can't truly define or explain what it feels mm-hmm. like unless you're there. And I will do my best to try, try to have your listeners try to sit where I was sitting and, and what it felt like. Now, if you can imagine your whole life dreaming and working towards one goal, and and you sacrifice so much. I mean, even in high school, you know, I was at the batting cages on the weekends. I was until my bled, my hands bled. You know, I would ate, drank, and slept baseball. And then when I finally got into the pro levels, uh, then it was climbing the ladder of, in the minor leagues. And of course, I had a lot of setbacks, injuries, but I never gave up. So 
when we fast forward and arrive to that moment in the World Series, um, to finally get that at bat and to be called on to pinch it. As I'm walking up to, and this is going to sound weird, but this is this is really what happened. As I'm walking up to the plate, everything is flashing in my head about that I've worked my whole life for this one moment. Mm -hmm. This is the moment that I've been dreaming about since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And with each step that I got closer, I started to zone in because I was trained to do that. You know, I had a very good ability to wash everything out and just focus on the task at hand. And so with each step, and I trained my mind that way. So with every step towards the batter's box, I got more and more focused until when it was time to dig in and face the pitcher, you might as well have put me in a tunnel with just him, just me and you, buddy. And everything else was gone. And I was so locked in. And, and I remember that was the, I think that was the first swing. And um, it was like the second or third pitch and um, hit the three run homer. And I remember leaving the batter's box. And as I'm rounding the bases, I was telling myself to slow down because this may never happen again. But I remember as I'm rounding the bases, everything flashing before me about all the hard work, everything it took to arrive at this moment. And wow. it's one that I tried to take in as best I could for as long as I could, because I knew it was just a once in a lifetime, if that, you know, um, and um, everything came flooding back to me about my whole life. So that's what you I described that really well. And, you know, I can tell you, I usually in our life, I, I think for me, I can describe anyway. I don't know that I've recognized in the moment how awesome an event was going to be on my life, right? Usually it's after it's over, you go, oh, wow, that was amazing, right? And, but the, what you described is you, it, it entered your mind. This is it. This is what I've been working for. That's amazing. You know, to, to have that recognition at that time, right? Well, there was a lot of lessons to be learned at playing at that level. And, and let me give you another quick one. And I'm going to go away from the world series for a little bit, but yeah. When I first got made it to the big leagues and with the Oakland A's, and I remember playing in Yankee Stadium for the first time. And I remember walking out on the field and it was easy to be intimidated or overpowered because you're walking on hallowed ground that Babe Ruth played on, Joe DiMaggio. You know, I walked around the monument before. The thing you had to tell yourself was a, it was a belief system. I belonged here. This is my destiny. I'm just as good as anybody else. And I remember walking out on the field first game and being called in the lineup by Bob Shepard, the famous field address announcer for the Yankees, who called my name. And I remember looking over at the Yankees dugout and seeing Lou Pinella and, you know, mm -hmm. all the greats over there. And I'm thinking if I had sat there and thought for a moment, said in the moment and said, man, what am I doing here? What is Bill yeah. doing here? Mm -hmm. You couldn't think that way. You had to just trust your ability to go out there. And, and I'm facing Ron Guidry on the mound, Louisiana Lightning, one of the most famous Yankee pitchers ever. And what did I do? I went up there first at bat and hit a three-run dinger off him. So <laughs> that was another thing. that I couldn't comprehend it, you know, but it was one where you look back and you think, you, you know, you lived your whole life for this moment. So that's kind yeah. of how you share that one. 
Wow. No, that's really, really amazing. Okay. So switching a little bit too, I, I've never asked you this question. And when I was talking to Steve Benegas, my, you know, my partner here and I, um, who loves baseball, I, I think as much as you, I don't know, maybe not quite, but pretty much I asked him what one question he would want to know from you. And he said, you know what I'd love to hear is why he became a catcher, why a catcher versus another, another position. Um, I assume that was very, uh, something you thought ahead and decided early on. It wasn't a, you know, so talk about that. I think it chose me. And I think uh, from an early on age, I just had this love to be a catcher. I don't know where it came from, but I was always drawn to being a catcher. And I don't know if it was the control issue. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a great arm, so I love throwing people out. I love wearing the uniforms. And, and the reason I knew it was the right position, even at a young age, I remember sitting in my room and for fun, I was, I was drawing pictures of catcher's gear. Now, what mm. kid does that? You know? Right. I mean, I did it because of how much I loved the position. I didn't know why I loved it. I just loved it. And I was drawn to it. I didn't, I never in my entire career did I ever want to play anything else but catcher. And it wasn't because anybody forced me on it it's because I was drawn to it innately. It was already in me to play that position. So. Wow. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, that's how a lot of us get to wherever we are in our career. You know, is it just sort of was part of your blood or part of your DNA or just came forward to you early on? You know, that's really amazing. Yeah. Um, so um, you still stay in touch with some of those names that you were throwing around earlier. A lot mm -hmm. of the what, what big names do you kind of <laughs> I mean, a lot of us can't comprehend this, but what kind of people do you frequently stay in touch with in baseball? Um, Dusty Baker. You know, I talk to him every year. He's he won the World Series last year as the manager of the Houston Astros. So uh, he's a real good friend. And, uh, you know, we talk probably once a year. Um, I have some other really close friends. Ernie Camacho, he was a pitcher in the big leagues. We're real good friends. We talk every year. Um, and then, you know, every now and then someone will reach out to me. Terry Kennedy, uh, he's the next big league catcher. In fact, he's one of my Medicare clients also. <laughs> mm, yeah. And then, um, but just... A few here and there. Terry Kennedy, probably and Dusty Baker are the two biggest ones that I stay in contact with. Um, <clears throat> but I could easily reach out to a lot of them. You know, going back, I went back to the 30-year uh, reunion of the World Series in, I think it was 2019. <clears throat> so um, the Giants put on a 30-year reunion of that, and they wanted to reward the 89 teams. So we had a four-day event over there. And so I got to reconnect with all, all the players I played with, which was, which was really awesome. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah. I imagine nothing, uh, nothing rises to the level of what you've done in baseball. I, I could go, I don't mean nothing in your life. I just mean nothing rises to the level of people wanting to hear about it. I don't think than that I could go on and ask you questions and brag a lot about, about you in general. Obviously you went on to become a fireman and a captain of the fire department. And, you know, you, you've achieved a lot of things in your life. I, I just wanted to make this all about baseball and just to kind of, again, have fun with it. What if people are listening, I probably don't know the right things to ask you. So if people are listening and they're baseball fans, what would be some, I don't know, parting thoughts you'd leave with them? Or uh, I hear a lot about the new um, base uh, diameter or the, the size of the bases maybe changing. Is there anything that you think would be important today about baseball that you'd like to share? Sure. If you, if you come in today's day and age of baseball, um, 
you see a lot of analytics and you often hear that, you know, mm. Billy Ball came around with the movie. Um, it's switched to more of a data-driven type business. And even though data has its place in businesses, it's usually not, it shouldn't be the one and only thing. And, and I hear that from uh, a lot of scouts. I have a real good major league baseball friend. who's a scout and he lives here in Tucson. And we often talk about that. He's a big league scout for the Detroit Tigers. And, uh, and he feels the same way I do. I'm a traditionalist, a traditionalist in the sense that I feel that nothing needed to be changed about baseball. I love the way it was. You know, one of the greatest signs I ever saw at a baseball game was a guy holding up a sign while Barry Bonds was at the plate and you could read it and it said, Babe Ruth did it on hot dogs and beer. You know, there's something to be said about that simplicity. When, when you look at baseball today, too many people are just analyzing the stats. I like to look at what's in somebody's heart, what's in their mind, how driven are they, what, how are they off the field, what kind of person are they, all the intangibles that aren't measured by data. So there needs to be a mixture of both, but not mm -hmm. so far to one extreme that, that baseball is today. To me, there's no need to change the size of the base, the, 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 the bases. Why? Yeah. Um, and then they want to put a time clock in there. Obviously, we know that's probably money driven and they're trying to attract more of the younger crowd. I never saw that there was really a need for that. I thought baseball was doing just fine. Um, you know, you can't you can't uh, bowl over a catcher anymore at home play. You know, how many times I got bowled over. That's just part of the game. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm the old school. You know, Let, let's go at it. Let's see who can do the best and, and, and have at it. Too many things today yeah boy you summarized it perfectly actually every industry that i that every industry is is going that way right into data-driven you know uh that that's what drives how you how you operate going forward and i agree with you that it's got to be a mixture of, of you know that's all very relevant and helpful but you can't do that you can't use that alone so no that's interesting yeah Thank you very much. I can't, there's no way I could summarize what you just said. Thank you very much for doing this. It's been really, really fun to have this kind of conversation with you after all these years. I don't think I've heard, uh, I've never had this kind of conversation with you. So it's been fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. And uh, thank you again. I hope so too, Ann. And uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's really good to see you. And, uh, you know, I love you and uh, we'll talk soon.